but the values are sort of a collective DNA. So you got to have 10, 15 people before you look around and say, you know, who fits, who doesn't, and, and what are our shared sort of commonalities that we believe in. So that's when I think the values, they're not aspirational. They're actually, what are the qualities of our best people? Welcome to the Going Global podcast, brought to you by Globalization Partners. Hire anyone, anywhere, quickly and easily. Use our AI-driven, automated, fully compliant global employer of record platform, powered by our in-house worldwide HR experts with 97% customer satisfaction ratings. Globalization Partners, succeed faster. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Going Global, the podcast where leaders in high-growth companies tell us their own stories of going global and building global remote teams. I'm your host, Diego Mendiburu, and remember that you can find all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. On today's show, we're going to interview Robert Glazer, the founder and CEO of global marketing agency Acceleration Partners. He's a Wall Street Journal and USA Today best-selling author on topics ranging from partner marketing to personal improvement to world-class company culture. Hello, Bob, and welcome. Thanks for having me, Diego. So, I mean, let's begin by setting things straight, because in one of the most dangerous years of our lifetime, full of uncertainties, you published not one, but two books. First, How to Make Virtual Teams Work, that was the first one, I believe, and then Elevate. Is that right? Well, close. So (laughs) Elevate came out uh, in the fall of 2019. So I published the Friday Forward book last year. And then, yeah, so How to Make Virtual Teams Work. The other ones get mixed up a little bit. And actually, I've turned How to Make Virtual Teams Work into a full-length book that was retitled How to Thrive in the Virtual Workplace. So that'll be coming out, uh, actually coming out first in Europe and parts of Asia in January, and then the US uh, later in Q2. So what you're saying is that it's almost three books in less than a year and a half. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Remind me not to do that again in the middle of a pandemic. But um, That's the question. Uh, How do you manage to do that? What's interesting is when you take away the constraint or you say, I couldn't do something. So... Mm -hmm. When the pandemic hit, you know, we've been a remote organization for 10 years, you know, one had a fortunate of winning a lot of best place to work awards. I used to speak a lot on culture and I actually was getting asked to speak a lot on remote and and how do I go remote? And I wanted to, I sort of did my own take on it, which was, well, how do you do remote, but be a great culture? I wasn't really interested in like, you know, the mechanics of just flipping everything to remote. And, and I was giving this presentation and people were asking a lot of questions and I'd answer them and I add to the presentation. And then I was like, you know what? I could turn this into a book. So I went to my publisher and, you know, the publishing just takes forever, traditional publishing. And I said, look, this, people are asking for this information. They need it. Do you think we get an, I think I could turn this presentation into a book in 60, 90 days. We get out as an ebook. And they said, let's do it. So we got it out as an ebook, wrote it in 90 days. And then it got the interest of some publishers for, you know, and it was an hour read, but it gave people a lot of value, sort of everything we had learned. And then there was some interest in really blowing that out, doing a lot of interviews, finding out what companies were doing. And then new books really organized around how to thrive in the virtual workplace. I'd say, you know, that really has everything in the other book plus more. But so in 90 days, I then wrote triple the book again to a full length book. But it's broken down into how do you make it work for employees? That's the, the first you know, section. And then what do organizations need to do to make virtual work work? And, you know, some of the conclusions and things I learned in talking to companies and CEOs and interviews that was that the companies that had great cultures to begin with and good foundational principles were making the transition pretty easily. The ones having a lot of problems, 
just being in an office was covering up a lot of bad stuff. Right. Yeah. So if you're a micromanager in an office, it's hard to then, you know, you got a problem when, when you switch to your employees not being in front of you. Okay, let's jump then into the questions around that book, How to Make Virtual Teams Work, Manage and Empower a Virtual Team that Thrives While Working from Home. How long you've worked with remote teams? When did you decide on making Acceleration Partners a fully remote company? And a second question would be, how much of what you wrote in that book was trial and error, things that you did that did work and things that didn't? We started by accident and we started out of necessity in terms of having to... Uh, we were in a niche industry, having to find senior talent across the U.S. and struggling and having to find people with the right experience. And so we started with that and found that people liked not necessarily the remote, but I, it's funny because I would get asked over the years to speak at this remote conference. And this one remote was really like companies like, you know, really like with a nomadic theme and stuff like that. It wasn't mainstream. And I'm like, I'm not really passionate about remote for remote sake. I'm passionate about a culture that has high accountability and high flexibility. And what we realized was we didn't all need to be in the same place if we had, you know, gave flexibility, but, but required accountability. And so we eventually went from like, oh, we're going to grow up and get offices to we don't want offices. And how do we scale this and make this work at a higher level? So it started out as sort of solving a problem and then it became more of an intentional thing. And then what we learned was, I think, similar to what companies are learning now, like, wow, you know, if you're, the example I give a lot is an onboarding program. If you're a remote company, you have to have a good intentional onboarding program. You can't have someone show up at their computer with nothing to do. But plenty of companies do that in person. They have it come in and they say, oh, Sarah, I didn't realize you were starting today. Just shout out Diego. And you know that, that's not onboarding, but you get away with it when you have an office. So I I actually think we have been forced to have better systems, be more intentional, do a lot of things better, given that we're not all in the same place. So it might sound like a very trivial question, but I'm wondering, why did you choose the word virtual and not remote? What would be the difference for you between a remote first company and a virtual team company? Yeah, it's interesting. We've used both. I think I use them interchangeably. You know, remote implies to me maybe a little bit that there's a, I can't think of the right word, but there's the main thing and then there's the remote, right? Like, like I think virtual or distributed sort of implies that, you know, the, the remote to me is like the people on the outside. Remote from what? Virtual means you're not all in a physical place or distributed to me is actually the best word. It just, no one uses it because it's kind of clunky. But I always think like remote implies that, you know, there's a center and there's a periphery and there's, you know, something on the outside and that's the piece on the outside. And I actually think those are the situations that don't work very well. And your company is fully virtual in terms that there's no central office headquarters where Bob sits no. and commands everything from that main office. That, that doesn't I don't, exist. I don't command anything, but uh, <laughs> yes, there's no, there's no central location. There's no headquarters. I interviewed Nicole for the full um, book. Nicole? Sahin, CEO of Globalization Partners, right? Yeah. And there are a lot of things our companies do similarly. And I think we both found the same strategy that to me, not a lot of people know, out, know about, but it's kind of the winning in this. But we follow this hub strategy. So our teams are in mostly in actual cities within a geographical proximity to each other, which serves a lot of practical purposes, even though there's not an office. So trying to hire people everywhere you know, is very difficult. Plus, if I'm the CEO and I want to connect with my Philadelphia hub or team, I can not, when there's not a global pandemic, I can fly down for the day and they can all come to a meeting within an hour. 
you know, and there's just things you can't do if you hire everywhere. I think, look, not trying to sell your company services. We are a client. But also, you create some real legal, logistical, payroll things when you start hiring people in all kinds of different states and countries and stuff without figuring you know, this stuff out. So it is important to be intentional. You know, even some of the, some of the requirements, if you just hire one person in one state in the U.S. are just onerous. Um, same for other countries. Let's start talking about values and then the creation of values, both for a person and trying to identify those values that, you know, make you yeah. move forward, but also for companies. And I think that will also help us link the book on virtual teams and your other book, Elevate. So one of the core values of Acceleration Partners is to embrace relationships. So, I mean, the big question at this moment is how to do it uh, if you're a remote first company or almost like a virtual company, and how to create uh, strong bonds and connection first between employees and then probably later on with clients, you know, at this moment where physical interaction is almost impossible. Yeah, look, you have to be intentional. You know, I started five years ago, I started writing this note to my team every Friday because we were virtual, it became Friday Forward, it became the book that was Friday Forward and Elevate. And, and I tell you that, you know, during the pandemic, I have gotten long page filled thank you emails and stuff from people that I don't even know. So it is certainly possible to look not ideal in some situations, but create connections, stay in touch with people, be intentional, create a community. It actually helps when everyone's on the same page. I think if everyone is at home and so everything you do is on Zoom and then you're joined up together, you know, people who join our company say they have a much deeper sense of culture and community than other companies versus if you're the one person that's on the outside or otherwise. So the fact that we're all on the same page, I think really you know, makes it a pretty level playing field. And what kind of activities or tools help you create those relationships? I mean, something as simple as a newsletter, do you think it's a good example of that? Yeah, note to the team. We have all kinds of things. We have different Slack channels based on people's preferences. You know, there's a Disney one with all the Disney <laughs> fanatics and, you know, another, another one for heavy metal music lovers. You know, we've done social things. Uh, we, again, this is, I guess, there's the, pandemic playbook and the non-pandemic playbook. But when there's not a global pandemic, we have a full company four-day global retreat every year that goes like very deep. Like usually, yeah, you know, there's a lot of team building, learning about ourselves. There's usually very emotional. And, and I think the type of depth of connections that are made on that exceed 40 or 50 of these kind of water cooler moments in the office where anyone's just talking about something superficial or otherwise. So in those in-person meetings, the ones we do quarterly at the hubs and the one we do annual are an important part of our culture. But we, like everyone else, have had to figure that out. You know, virtual team building, like there's figuring out how to make it work. It's not ideal, but I think it's about putting in the effort and making the connection. This all relates to this idea that you have like customers will not love a business if your employees don't love it first, right? You've mentioned that in other interviews. So do you remember the moment you decided to build this kind of company like Acceleration Partners that has been honored as one of Glassdoor's best places to work? What motivated you to pursue this idea of a company that was one of the best places to work? Yeah, just because I've used that quote, but it's Simon Sinek, so I don't want to seem like I'm stealing it from him. But I believe in the sentiment. I Yeah, there was actually a very distinctive moment when the company was starting to get big, it was starting to get beyond myself. 
I was sort of artificially constraining it because I just, I kind of was scared of like, I just don't want to become one of those companies that has all this red tape and BS and politics. And I just don't want to do that. But the company was growing and I, I, I was being sort of forced into an inflection point. And so I was like, all right, if we're going to grow this business, we're going to do this. Like I'm going to sort of challenge all of these paradigms around how we can build a company, what we can do, how people work how they leave the company, how we promote them. And I just, I sort of took it as a challenge to blow up a lot of the stereotypes and things that I really hated about organizations and try to create a company that I was proud to and happy and excited to go to work at every day that grew. We grow by growing people. We don't grow by burning out people. I think a lot of growth companies, particularly venture back ones, it's just like, it's like grow. And and if you turn through the people along the way, like fine, but we've, We've invested in grown people who've allowed us to grow the business. I think 85% of our leaders have been developed from within. Ah, that's interesting because, you know, usually entrepreneurs start by trying to solve a problem. And usually that's an external problem that yeah. may find a user base, a consumer base. But pretty much also building and starting your own company means trying to solve the problems that you lived in in other workplaces that made that workplace not a good one. The how we do what we do is as interesting to me as what we do. Like we're in an industry where we are trying to solve those problems. But, you know, that decision to build an organization to do that was also a conscious decision of there's always the problem you're solving, but then how do you want to do it, right? There's a lot of people solving great problems with terrible cultures. It becomes like a means to an ends. I never wanted to be forced on an ends. I wanted the journey to be the reward and to not ever feel like, I hated going to work at the company that I created. So at each stage, we've been very intentional around, okay, what's the stereotype? What happens here? What's the accepted norm or behavior? And like, if we don't agree with it, how do we do it differently? One of the things we spent a lot of time on is trying to change how people leave the organization, eliminate this paradigm of two weeks notice, have open conversations, like, just let's all understand that no one's going to work at Acceleration Partners forever. You're going to want to do something different. We're going to need something different. And how do we change that from sort of to like no fault car insurance where, you know, you get this sort of quit versus fired, right? Versus the, hey, this is just time to move on and do something different. And we both figured out how to do that. And we have a great alumni network. I think we can touch more on the thing and the issue of core values of both a company and a person. So what you're saying is part of building that ideal place to work has to start by designing and writing down those core values of a company, right? Yeah. So it's interesting. I think um, with a company, it's a little different than a person. And we focus a lot on core individuals. Like you need to understand your core values. Uh, I'm rolling out a course on this next week because I think you can't be a great leader if you're not clear on your personal core values because you're not going to lead authentically unless the way you lead is aligned with your values. So your values sort of come first. In an organization, the purpose is usually first, like you said, because why was it started? We were, you know, we were started to end blindness or change marketing or fix hiring, you know, whatever it is. But the values are sort of a collective DNA. So you got to have 10, 15 people before you look around and say, who fits, who doesn't? And what are our shared sort of commonalities that, that we believe in? So that's when I think the values, they're not aspirational. They're actually, what are the qualities of our best people? And I, I think a lot of, I, did, I was not a believer in core values and a lot of the vision and all this stuff because I just saw it on walls. I didn't see it used. 
my definition of core values is the DNA of someone who is successful at the organization. And those shared, it's not, they don't have to be the same by any means, but as a shared set of values, like you would have in any community or tribe or religion or whatever, you know, you're not looking for homogeneity, but you've got to have shared principles, right? If you fundamentally want different things or believe different things in life, like it's very hard to get on the, on the same page. Those have to be things that the best quality, they can't be aspirational. They have to be who you actually are and you want to live. So we, we always say that's the DNA of what makes someone successful. It's not a marketing statement. It's not used externally. We would sort of use it in our review process, in our hiring, our promotion to say, does this person demonstrate the behaviors you know, that we have agreed to as a group. I was just going to ask you exactly that, what you just said, you know, like this risk of, you know, usually entrepreneurs have their own set of values, even they, if, if they have already recognized them, identify them, that would be great. But maybe if they don't, they already have some sort of values inside them and they act upon that. And probably they build a company based on those same values. I mean, it's not the same, the core values that you can find on Facebook than those yeah, you find Yeah, there should on be Twitter. a connection. Yeah, yeah, but right. there's a connection. You do recognize a Zuckerberg behind Facebook and Jack Dorsey behind Twitter or the other yeah. way around. So that's a good question. I mean, if a company's most of the time built around the core values of the founders, how do you avoid, you know, having this mentality of let's hire people that think the same as this founder or in this, almost the same way, but then potentially killing diversity and even creativity by having the same type of people? So, you know, there's a big debate these days around cultural fit. I think cultural fit's important, but I also agree that we're all, people are talking about different semantics. To me, like, I think cultural fit in a marriage is important and cultural fit in a deciding what community you're going to live in is important. My definition of fit is not carbon copies and everyone thinking about you know, the same thing. You have to share some, the, the basis of any community that is sustainable is some shared principles that everyone agrees to. And you can have all kinds of differentiation, but you got to have some shared you know, non-negotiable principles. Like for instance, like if we have a core value of respect in the organization, that would imply we can fight and argue and have all different types of opinions that not everyone has to agree, but they have to be respectful. It's not okay to be to say, Diego, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And you're a moron. Like you'd say, no, that's, you know, just like in a family, your parent, like you can do a bunch of things, but you cannot cross these lines. So I actually think that people have, and, and I want to be very careful how I say this, I think they've unfairly applied the diversity argument against a fit, you know, mm. too far, because you cannot create a successful organization where every, no one wants the same thing at all. I fundamentally believe that the extreme of that is just chaos, mm -hmm. where everyone is on their own, different, doesn't want the same thing, doesn't agree on anything otherwise. There are certain companies for certain people. There are certain, I, a lot of times I say like universities, right? There are great colleges around the world. They have totally different value propositions. You know, a small liberal arts rural school, or a large city school with pre-professional, people go to those universities because of the value proposition. They don't want everyone that thinks the same, but there's something about that value proposition that's different from somewhere else. So I, to me, that's true. I think organizations have to stand for something. They have to have principles. They have to have non-negotiables. But they should, within that, they should want as much diversity of mind and thought and other ways as, as possible. So what's the easiest way to see if uh, a company's values match with a candidate's uh, values? I mean, is it the, the secret lies in the interview Behaviors. process, in a yeah. tri um, trial period? How do you recognize that quickly? 
Uh, I mean, you should get good at the interviewing process. So we have behavioral-based questions that are designed around all of our core values. So you mentioned uh, embrace relationships, right? So I'll, the interviewer might ask a question, what was a problem you couldn't solve yourself and you needed to bring someone in to help you with that, right? Mm-hmm. The person might be like, there is nothing I can't do myself. Right. That, that that's that's someone who, you know, or, or they say, look, I, I, you know, I brought in someone smarter than me. It was a guy on my team and I needed help or otherwise. We have another uh, core value of Excel and improve. We want people who are learners, who excellent, get better. So we might say if you're an interview, hey, Diego, tell me, is there a course or a book you've read or something you're doing the last couple of years about getting better in something? If you can't come up with anything in the last couple of years. That's probably a good indication to us that excelling and improving is not part of your important to you or part of your core DNA. So we actually have like a whole bank of behavioral based questions in our interviewing, trying to understand past behavior, past actual behavior is the biggest predictor of future behavior. And so all the interviewing science would say, you know, our interview is very 50 50 around. Are you a fit for the values and you can do the job? Because if we got to make sure both of those jobs are checked, if you are fit for the values, but can't do the job, there may be a different job for you. If you can do the job, but aren't fit for the values, there's no way it's going to work out. And you've mentioned that you still get involved in that recruitment process, right? You you interview the candidates or have a one-hour interview. No, it's it's the opposite. So I actually believe in an interview. I spent a lot of time with Jeff Smart. He is the no pun intended, smartest guy in the world on interview science. Mm-hmm. I think most CEOs, most leaders, they're bad interviewers. They love their voodoo questions. They love their, what dog do you want to be? Where do you see yourself in five? All, all the questions that have no statistical validity. And they have no, they'll say, well, I hired Diego and he answered this. Well, you don't know if you let three superstars go mm-hmm. that, that didn't answer dog. Or yeah, where do you see yourself in five years? So Diego, you tell me this unbelievable story of achievement. You've been telling that story for 15 years and haven't done anything, right? So it's only past behavior is indicative of a future behavior. So no, I am probably not the best interviewer in the company. I only interview for the exec team. So I just don't do it enough. I am a believer in the process. So I work on and we tweak the process. We look at where there are breakdowns in the process. We believe from the time you first email that candidate till they are hired, all of that data is part of the interview and you should pay close attention to all of it. Did they show up late for every interview? No matter how good the interview was, guess what? They're going to be late. They're going to be late to your client meetings. They're going to be late to the other stuff. Were they difficult to get a hold of? Did they send a thank you note? Like To me, all of these pieces of data all need to be put together. And if you play the algorithm, you are, you know, when you're playing it a hundred times, you are going to do better than trusting your judgment. Your judgment is filled with so much bias. If left to themselves, people would hire mostly people that, you know, and then they take these personality tests, you know, the, the people that match them on all these personality tests, because they just, I don't know, they can smell it or feel it. They're like, oh, he's like me. And to your point before, I don't want someone like me. I want someone who covers my, my weaknesses. I want to look at the job requirements and say, oh, attention to detail was the number one thing. Well, I've, you know, Diego is so funny and I've been laughing with him, but he's been terrible on detail throughout the whole presentation. So I'm, I'm getting caught up in the wrong thing. So I big believer in a robust, repeatable interview process that actually is not dependent on any one individual. 
After looking at your experience in the last years of your career, I would imagine that you would agree if I say that your most crucial function as CEO has been communication, communicating. Right? I mean, you do the newsletter, your books, your public presence, or, or would you disagree? I think every, look, I run a services business. So for most people, when you're dealing with people, I think communication is every almost everything uh, and anything. But yeah, my job is to set the strategy, focus on the people, focus on the team, give them a vision of where we're going, communicate that, get them excited about that. So communicating well is a huge part of the, the role. Yeah. Who do you write your books for? I mean, would you say that it's the same audience, the one that you wrote, for example, Elevate for, than the one for the virtual team's audience? I write my books for learners. I am not a theoretical, you know, kind of leader. I think when we have figured out, remember I told you we were going to try to break a lot of these conventions, you know, mm -hmm. and Elevate was sort of about, you know, investing in people holistically. Uh, I'm actually going to, my next book next year is going to be sort of elevating your team um, and bringing the same principles. But when I think that we have sort of proven something in the lab that has value to the world, I inherently would like to share it because I want to see other people get that same gain or productivity, right? I enjoy sharing ideas that help people and organizations grow. So I'm writing it for people who want to get better, who want to be better individual leaders, run better organizations. Like I, I really, I think business and leadership are one of the most fundamental forces for change and great leaders and great companies and great leadership can really like change lives and poor leadership and poor company otherwise can destroy lives. And I think that if anytime I've figured out something that I think can improve the situation for someone, I'm, I'm inherently want to try to give them the playbook to do that and basically open source it. Yeah. And do you think anyone can train himself or herself to become a leader? Uh, yeah. I think just like an athlete, there's some talent and there's some skill. So uh, I know there's a whole, are leaders born or leaders developed? Like, I think it is both, right? If you have no talent and no inclination, it's hard to get good at something. But just because you have raw talent doesn't mean it doesn't take practice and study and, and getting used to it. I mean, a lot of the great leaders, you know, weren't, it wasn't consistent. They had a breakthrough. They decided it was something that they saw the talent within themselves. They did the work. They had a breakthrough. I think it is a little bit of a, of a mix there um, between, you know, having some of the talent, wanting it, and then wanting to, willing to do the work. The best leaders I know are just constant work in process. It's not something you just like, get a badge and then you're good. And I guess one of the things I imagine could be a conclusion of what you've said is that the people that have more chances of succeeding are those that are constantly willing to improve themselves and learn constantly, right? Yes. You show me a leader who is defensive and that leader will never get better. I would say there's three types of people around feedback that I've been around. They're the ones who just don't want it and are very clear they're unwilling. They're the ones who ask for it but don't really want it and then just make the same mistakes over and over again and they get frustrated. These are the people who score poorly, you know, in a check-in and just keep saying, I keep getting the same feedback about X. <laughs> and they're missing that like, well, clearly you haven't changed or improved X. And then these other people who want it, get it, fix it and never make that mistake again. Those people are always outperforming everyone else. I, you know, I see that frustration sometimes and it's always from underperformers who are saying, I keep getting this feedback, you know, the same feedback over and over again, not being self-aware that they are clearly not able to or not willing to make the change that is being brought up. Because if you've ever worked or had someone on your team is phenomenal, you say, look, Diego, this is major career blind spot for you. And they say, oh my, thank you for pointing that out. 
and they go get a book, listen on a podcast, work on it, and you never have that discussion again. You just mentioned that you're already working on a new book. Tell us more about that, especially how working with virtual teams also allows you to be a more global company because you don't have these physical barriers that you know countries' borders are. So tell us more about what we will see in that new book and how it can help companies go global easier. We were, I think, talking before about, you know, having to get that book out like really quickly just based on our experience. But then, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, I went and talked to companies and interviewed people and saw what everyone was doing and pulled it all together and said, well, what are the themes here? And so, you know, the expanded book, I think, is, is really designed. The first book was designed where people are like, oh, I'm in this mode and I didn't plan to be here. Like, what do I do? I think this, is, this book is really designed for companies and leaders going forward to say, what are my options? Like, Once we have the ability to go back into offices, what kind of company we want to run and how do I support it? I'm actually, look, I'm a big proponent of remote work. I think that distributed companies is a huge advantage we talked about, talent and otherwise. But I, I'm not, oh, all offices are dead and no one will go ever do anything again. I'm not, I mean, there might be the perception that, you know, I would take that stance. What I do think is that companies are going to have to make a decision They are going to probably upset a third of their company with whatever they do. Let's pretend the company was in person before the pandemic. They went remote. People can't wait to come back to the office. But the company's like, this is great. We don't, we love not having offices and save money. So, so they want to go fully remote. Well, now they've got a whole bunch of people they've upset. Or the reverse. They say, everyone, come back. We're doing the office. And they all say, why should I come back? Like, I, I was doing my job. We company did fine. And I wasn't in traffic. So the game will have changed a little bit. I think whether you're fully back in person, fully remote, or hybrid, which will be the most dangerous, because to me, that will be the absence of a decision rather than a, a clear hybrid strategy. Uh, and I actually think that is going to cause the most problems. It doesn't have to be that way. If hybrid is intentional and supported, but I think organizations need to pick the strategy, support the strategy, and understand that they might lose a third of their employees. Wow. So it's not as easy as, as some people may think, you know, like, oh, let's just keep things going as they are or just going to the middle ground and everyone will be happy. What you're saying yeah, is... Yeah, because needs... think about those scenarios I just said, where, where the company met all its numbers, did great. And then they said, look, everyone come back in the office. And they said, well, why? Like, well, why do we have to do that full time? It didn't, it didn't matter. You told us it would never work and it worked. So I think people are going to realize, and look, this, this breaks down on the extrovert versus introvert spectrum, but they're going to realize that they, they want different things. And the worst thing you can ever do as an organization, this goes to about, don't pretend to be everything to everyone. Tell people the truth. Tell them they're coming back to the office. They're not coming back to the office. There's going to be a hybrid strategy. And if they don't want to do that, then find a way to happily part ways with them. But if you just say, well, we'll figure it out or tell you, then you're just going to make the situation worse. Tell us a bit more yeah. about your own experience uh, pending acceleration partners globally. And one specific question I had is how much of your company's culture or values have to adapt to fit other cultures, customs, traditions, and particular ways of doing business? Yeah, so this is really interesting. And we did not know how this was going to play out when we when we started. And then, you know, expanding globally, I think, is one of the hardest things an organization can do. I think most organizations sort of over-index in one of two directions. They either hire a GM or locally without ever sort of ingraining that business into the company, and it becomes sort of a separate identity, or they send a bunch of pats over to an area they don't understand or know or the culture to try to sort of plant the flag. And I think both of those strategies don't work. 
But this is actually where hybrid is the right answer. What you need is some combination of the people who understand the culture and how it's done and the people who understand the local market and the customs and otherwise. What we have actually been really happy to, to prove is that you know, we have a single culture globally. We do not change our core values. They are not malleable. Like they are humanistic, but there are things about each culture that require, like how people give feedback, how they respond. Like those are things we had to learn that are really different in each area. We had to learn how to different communications and how a Brit and a German talk to each other and what they're willing to say. So yeah, we've been, you know, very cognizant of localization and culture and customs but since the core value is the DNA of someone who is successful at our organization, we're not really willing to mutate that or change that. And we haven't had to. You know, interestingly, like when you look at someone like where like Asia, where historically people are pretty conflict avoidant and we have a culture that is about open and honesty, we found the people for whom that's what they really wanted. They were tired of they had a lot of bad experience, even though that's how it was almost everywhere. For them, this was like a breath of fresh air because this is actually who they were as a person and they didn't like playing that role in that organization. So yeah, our values have been consistent. I would say our sort of operating principles and, and things around like how you would do feedback in the US versus how you might do it in APAC or otherwise. Like perfect example, we did a seminar kind of to different teams in different hours. And you know, if we ask for questions in the US, everyone will raise their hand. And someone reminded me on our culture team, hey, when you do that for the APAC team, call in a few people or ask them all to think of a question during the presentation because they're just not as likely to want to speak up afterwards. And, and I did that and we had a great discussion. But that was someone on my team having done the work and understanding some of the cultural differences. And I'm thinking that maybe there is already one kind of global citizen out there, you know, people that no matter where you were born, the internet has made us incredibly aware of how Americans do business or how uh, British people do business. And there's more like a common global mentality among certain kind of professionals. Would you say that or not necessarily? Yeah, look, there's generation, right? There's, as you said, it's globalization, it's generalization. I mean, back to the APAC example, I, I don't think the younger generation in Asia wants to go just go into the workplace, never open your mouth, never question authority. That's not what they want. And so there are changes. And again, our culture is about that open, healthy dialogue, mutual respect, you know, all those things that I think are principles that, you know, some people clearly identify that they want. Thank you very much for this conversation, uh, Robert. Please tell us where people can find more about you and about your books, where to acquire them. Yeah, you can find all the books, Friday Forward, podcast, uh, everything and more at robertglazer.com. This is the end of our show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember that you can find all episodes on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. And if you're planning to hire a new global team member, Globalization Partners makes it easy to onboard international talent in a matter of days. Go to globalization-partners.com to get started. This is Going Global. Presented by Globalization Partners.